This is The Crucible, the JRTC experience. This is Outthinking the Enemy. In this series, we discuss intel, warfighting skills, and lessons learned in a decisive action training environment for large-scale combat operations at JRTC. Hello. Hi. How you doing? Uh, I'm Colonel Matt Hardman. I'm the uh, current commander of operations group at the Joint Readiness Training Center. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to have a great discussion. A note from the podcast team. Today's guest is U.S. Army retired Colonel John Antle. He is a renowned author, military historian, and foreign affairs subject matter expert. He served 30 years in the U.S. Army, where he led formations from platoon level through regiment and served on Corps and multinational staffs. He is the author of hundreds of articles on military affairs and leadership subjects, as well as having authored 14 books, including his most recent book, Seven Seconds to Die, a military analysis of the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War and the Future of Warfighting. Yes, sir. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, today I'm going to talk about seven battle space disruptors, and these are warfighting challenges that have I derived from my deep study of the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War and also an ongoing assessment of the Russian-Ukrainian War. This briefing is unclassified. Anyone could have put this together. I got it from open sources. Uh, I update this briefing daily. So if you've seen this before, you're going to see a different version here. And uh, this is my 83rd briefing since January 2021. And I have briefed uh, Chief of Staff of the Army. I briefed sergeants uh, and special forces at Fort Bragg. Uh, I brief anyone who thinks they need this kind of information to help their team and help our army. Now, my purpose is to raise your awareness of the changing methods of warfare and inspire you to study and act in time. I know how busy you all are, and I know how dedicated you are in studying all this, but we really need to read to lead, and there's a lot of important things that are happening now, and I hope that uh, this will help uh, give you some uh, food for thought. This is what the Secretary of the Army said back in October. She said that we need to look harder at key cases, such as the Nagorno-Karabakh War, which happened, of course, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and that we need to make some changes very swiftly. All of you I know are frustrated at the flash to bang time, things that we need to get things done fast. But we all know that we could end up in a war next week. So these lessons, I think, are worthy of your time. Now, first, I'll give you a little background. Many of you know a lot about the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War, and I believe that an in-depth study of the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War is valuable. We have a little bit of a cultural bias when we say Azerbaijan, Armenia, the Caucasus doesn't rise to the level of our discussion, but it truly does. Now, what's interesting, Nagorno-Karabakh is about the size, twice the size, of the National Training Center. So that's an interesting point of reference. It's about the size of the state of Delaware, and of course, it happened in the fall of 2020, and the war was fought between near-peer competitors, and it does give us a glimpse of the future of war. What's really interesting is Armenia held the high ground for 26 years, and they prepared their defenses accordingly. 
They laid out in-depth fields of fire, obstacles, minefields. They dug in bunkers. They dug in all their positions. They had extensive trench works, first, second, third, fourth lines of trenches. None of that mattered. Azerbaijan won a decisive victory in 44 days. A decisive victory. Azerbaijan. Now, Azerbaijan conducted also a joint and a multi-domain campaign, which is really worth our study. They achieved all their objectives. They gained control of five cities, four towns, 286 villages, and the control of the entire Azerbaijani-Iranian border. Most importantly, this was the first war in history to be won primarily with robotic systems. We really need to understand that. Now, these are the top war fighting disruptors that I want to talk about today. The transparent battle space, the first strike advantage, the tempo of war, top attack, fully autonomous, the transition from the kill chain to the kill web, and our problem with trying to visualize the battle space. All of you know a lot about this. So hopefully what I'll be able to do is just give you extra food for thought and give you an opportunity to discuss some of this when we can do questions and answers. First, the transparent battle space. You talked about this earlier today and just recently in the last briefing. We now have a different, different world than what we ever fought in before. You know this picture, you've seen this. This is from the National Training Center. The electronic signature of a brigade. If you were the enemy commander, where would you send your long range precision fires? Red being the area of greatest electromagnetic uh, emission. We cannot hide in this area and we have to be able to look at five different areas to mask. We need to mask in the optical spectrum. That means camouflage. We should be the best in the world in camouflage. Thermal, we have to be able to decrease the thermal signature of our systems. We need to work on this. We need to think about it. We can't change our systems overnight. None of them were designed with a minimal thermal signature in mind. The M1 tank is as hot as it gets when its engine's going, and it will be seen. But there's ways to mask that when you're not moving or other ways to mask it. Electronic. We need to seriously think about how we can mask our electronic signature. We are an army that, that swims in a sea of electrons. Everything we have is electronic. We have so much electronics in our systems, we don't even know how many systems we have because we don't know how much leakage there is. If we wanted to turn off our electronic systems, if we wanted to go to electronic silence for two or three hours, could we do it? And if we could, how would we even know if they're off? Acoustic. Acoustic is an arena we got to think about. There are drones right now that will find you by sound. They can triangulate your location and they will find it if you shoot. They will find you if you're if you're moving. So we have a problem in the acoustic arena too. And lastly, quantum. Quantum is not our biggest problem. Quantum is exotic. But the Chinese are working on quantum sensors to be able to see our stealth aircraft. And they are successful in doing this at certain periods of time. Now, we're not yet in the world of having to worry about quantum as much, but this is an area to think about. Now, this is an idea of how open source information gives you intelligence information. All of you are aware of Maxar Technologies. This is a civilian company that anyone can go on to. I got this picture free from them. And you can get these images from their satellite and from many other satellite providers. 
So the day after this attack occurred, here's the attack that the uh, Ukrainians did on the Russian aircraft that were at Kyrgyzstan Air Base. We didn't have this kind of stuff 30 years ago. And our enemies in, the, in, our, in our previous wars haven't really had the technology and the ability to do this, although they were getting smarter and smarter and using available open source information. But now it is very, very difficult to hide. So the battle space is transparent. And when the question you have to ask, and each one of these is posed to you in a question, how will you deceive enemy sensor networks and disrupt the enemy's targeting systems? That should be a warfighting question you asked from the beginning. Now, during the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War, Azerbaijan sensor network, which was greatly aided by Turkey, they had data from all sorts of systems, including the videos from their anti-tank guided missiles. This is new in warfare, to have weapon systems themselves, the bullets, if you will, taking video as they're flying. The loitering munitions, of course, did the same thing. The unmanned aerial systems across the board, the UCAVs. And by the way, we need to start talking unmanned combat aerial vehicles and loitering munitions, not just all UAS, aircraft and satellites. So Azerbaijan had high fidelity of the Armenian forces in the battle space. They knew when they were moving and they knew when they were stationary. And one Armenian soldier said this, there's nowhere to hide and no way to fight back. Nowhere to hide and no way to fight back. I can't think of anything more demoralizing than that. By the way, the same basic trends are happening in the Russian Ukrainian war. As I showed you from the previous picture, you can see where the Russians are. We could see the columns. We could see all of these things happen. Of course, the Ukrainians can. The Russians can see as well. Now, Russia and China will use even more robust and advanced sensor networks than Azerbaijan demonstrated. And as many of you noticed, uh, uh, said earlier, the Russians made some huge mistakes, yes. And they're going to learn from that. They always do. Just look at the 1939 Winter War. They got beaten bad, and then they learned from it, and they came back and won. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen here. They have some real fundamental problems, but the Russians learn. So I don't know what's going to happen next year or five years from now. So we need to pay attention. The Chinese in particular are spending a lot of, of energy and time making systems that will locate and target our forces. We must either mask or die. If we can't mask our forces, we will not survive. So what is masking? Masking is not a military term. It should be. Masking is the full spectrum, multi-domain effort to deceive enemy sensors and disrupt enemy targeting. The full spectrum, multi-domain effort to deceive enemy sensors and disrupt enemy targeting. It's all about the kill chain. And you know, we say a little joke about how amateurs study tactics and professionals study logistics. Uh, but if you're a student of Sun Tzu and others, you understand that masters, masters of the art of war understand tactics, they understand logistics, and they understand and employ masking, masking. Now, this is an example of something we can do to reduce thermal signature, just to give you an idea. This doesn't work 100%, but it does have a promise to mask uh, in the near infrared, thermal infrared, and broadband radar wavelengths. This is camouflage that is uh, available by Saab, but there's other companies that make this. The concept is, is that we can do more to mask our systems. The next war fighting disruptor is the first strike advantage. 
To the left, you see the operational framework of multi-domain operations. You're all very familiar with this. To the right, you see a diagram that I've created or an image that I've created of five-dimensional chess. I don't know how many of you play three-dimensional chess. It's a lot of fun, but five-dimensional chess is even harder. And imagine that's what we're trying to do with multi-domain operations. That's why it's so complex and so difficult. What we're trying to do is move forces from one domain to the next, cross-domain maneuver. And if we can, we want to move as many forces as we can to one domain. So if we were able to get all five domains to impact an enemy who's on one domain and maybe blocked from using other domains, we have a tremendous advantage. But the most important thing to understand here is that there's no safe areas. Throughout the entire operational framework, those six physical spaces, there are no safe areas. Who's going to defend your logistics? Who's going to defend your hospitals, your hospital systems, your evacuation systems, your, 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 your entire line of communication back to the port? All of those can be engaged by long range precision fires and the enemy will know where things are across the battle space. This is combat footage from the Second Agonic Karabakh War. These are images from TB2, Baraktar TB2s, firing MAM-L and MAM-C missiles at Armenian air defense systems. One rocket, one kill. This is camouflaged, but badly. Any, any aircraft system, that's an OSA. Another one destroyed. The tank. All of these air defense systems were working and it didn't matter. Now you all know that in the Second Dagonic Karabakh War, even though the Armenians held the high ground, it didn't matter. The Azerbaijanis were able to win air dominance in the first few days and certainly by the next by the second week. They used their precision fires to set the battlefield, set the conditions for success, and then they maneuvered to succeed and win a decisive victory. So how will your forces survive in the enemy's first strike? Azerbaijan mobilized first, struck first, won air dominance, and maintained the initiative throughout the war, a war-winning advantage. In almost every scenario, will we be attacking first or will we be receiving? And if we're receiving, how are we going to be ready for that? Now, Russia and China will strike first. Russia struck first in the Ukrainian war. Not a successful first strike as they could have probably done, but they characterized the war wrong and went in with the wrong assumptions. Nonetheless, China will strike first against Taiwan when the war happens in Taiwan. And in most scenarios, Russia's demonstrated, like as Russia demonstrated in the Russian-Ukrainian war, our enemies will strike first. So we have a huge problem. All of our forces across the entire spectrum of the battle space are now under the guns. There are no safe areas. There are no sanctuaries. The range of long-range precision fires reaches the entire MDO framework.
Next, the Temple of War. This is a Spike LR missile. <laughs> Combat footage from the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War of an Azerbaijani Spike LR gunner striking an Armenian tank. You saw all the information that missile gave. Now what's happening is that missiles with cameras, unmanned aerial systems with cameras, loitering munitions and UCAVs, plus satellites, aircraft, and all sorts of ground sensors are seeing more and more and more. It'll never be perfect, but they will know a lot more about us than ever before. And we won't be able to hide in the dark, we won't be able to hide in the woods, and we certainly won't be able to survive well in the open areas unless we do some really exceptional masking. Now, the speed and tempo of war is changing dramatically, partially because the precision attack that these weapons are able to deliver destroys weapon systems so fast that everything's speeded up. So our challenge is, is that if an artillery battery is destroyed in less than a minute that I've seen over and over again from Second Nagorno Karabakh, and which you've also witnessed Russian batteries being destroyed by TB2s and artillery in Ukraine. And of course, the same thing happened against Ukrainian. We just don't have as many videos of it. Those things happen very quickly and suddenly whole units are taken out. So precision attack dramatically increases the tempo of war. And since the tempo of war is accelerating, the question you have to ask is, how will you absorb critical information in time from all five domains to observe, orient, decide, and act in time? How can you do this in a way that will give you an advantage in your OODA loop? Now, during the Second Nogunna-Karabakh War, Armenian forces were completely stunned by the speed, the depth, precision, and fury of the Azerbaijani attack. It knocked them off balance. Loitering munitions were overhead 24-7, and they hunted targets in the battle space day and night, and they operated in many cases in human out-of-the-loop mode. The Azerbaijani set a strike zone, they set out their loitering munitions, their harrops and their orbiters and rotoms and others, and those things were hovering above all the time. And when the Armenians weren't under direct attack, they often worried that they were. So it froze the battlefield. The Armenians were afraid to move. Plus, this precision attack destroyed, in many cases, the, the uh, uh, Armenians' command and control. The Azerbaijanis' targeting priority was first air defense, then electronic warfare, then command and control, then artillery, then tanks, then armored vehicles of all types, then wheeled vehicles of all types, and then troops. Now, the war started on 27 September 2020. By the middle of October, Azerbaijan was hunting troops they were running out of targets. They were hunting troops with their loitering munitions. Now, Russia and China have greater capabilities than Azerbaijan, and they'll have more systems, and many more operating in human out-of-the-loop machine speeds. And all of this accelerates the tempo of war. Now, one of the things we have to do is think about this in terms of the kill chain. So how do we accelerate our kill chain and disrupt the enemy's kill chain to overmatch their tempo? Key question. The next warfighting disruptor is top attack. You're well aware of the, the effectiveness of the Javelin and other systems and the NLAW in Ukraine. Top attack is now the preferred method. We used to worry about the frontal slope of the tank. Now the tank will be hit from the top. 
Now this strike here, this picture here, that you see the explosion and you see a loiter munition flying off on, onto the left of this explosion. A Harrop destroyed a uh, Armenian artillery howitzer, much like the one you see at the top right. And then another orbiter that was part of the package they sent out to destroy this battery of 10 or 12 loitering munitions uh, altogether with a few Harrops and the rest orbiters, which are cheaper. That orbiter knew that the Harrop hit the target because they're talking to each other. The systems are talking to each other. And that orbiter flew off to hit the next gun. In the video of this strike, an entire battery of Armenian howitzers, towed howitzers that were dug in, were destroyed in 60 seconds. The Harrop, by the way, is no small thing. It is basically the explosive uh, capability of a 155 artillery round. So it is a precision strike 155 artillery round that loiters for six hours above the battle space, looks for a target, and then attacks ac according to its targeting parameters. So imagine if these were your soldiers. Flies right into the bunker. Top attack. How will you stop the arrow or kill the archer? This is a metaphor. For you. Yes, go ahead. Hey, quick question. Why didn't we see that? I mean, we, we've we seen, uh, you know, you've, you've covered a lot of this uh, in the past. Why didn't we see this in the first week of February? Uh, why didn't, if the Russians came in with these systems, we just didn't see that level of precision from them. You kind of alluded to some failed assumptions, but why did that not emerge in, uh, I mean, because this kind of capability could have devastated Ukraine in, in the first weeks of the attack. It could have. Now, if you were planning the Russian attack, would you have planned it the way they did it? Probably not. Yeah, exactly. Now, they regret that, I'm sure, too. Also, one of the problems with the Russians that we're finding out, which is a big problem, is that it was an old Soviet joke. It was, um, they, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Uh, the Soviet jokes have a lot of uh, truth to them. Um, one of the problems with the Russians is that some of their uh, unmanned combat aerial vehicles and some of their loitering munitions, uh, which we have not seen a lot of videos of, we have been seeing more from the Ukrainian side, and they're winning the information war, which is part of it. But, but some of their systems are not working as well as advertised. And they may not have integrated them as well as Azerbaijan did. But think about this. Azerbaijan did this. Azerbaijan did this against their enemy. Now, we can say that the Armenians weren't worthy enemies, but let's face it, you fight a war against the enemy you have. So it wasn't that the Armenians were pushovers. It was the Azerbaijanis planned it very well. Now, the Russians didn't plan it very well, but there are a lot of, uh, of unmanned aerial systems flying around. Now, they're not being jammed so much, and they're not being shot down so much. There's a huge capability gap right now 
in being able to take these down. I mean, the TB2 is slow moving. I mean, 200 miles an hour, uh, and it sounds like a, um, a lawnmower flying through the air. You would think that you would be able to knock the TB2 down. Now, the Russians have claimed they knocked down 107%, 107%. Uh, the Ukrainians say they've only knocked down about 12. Uh, now, the real, the real data, who knows? <clears throat> and the Ukrainians didn't have that many of these. They only have about 30 some plus. But, and also another thing about the Ukrainian TB2s is that their precision guided missiles were, were pretty much used up in the first couple weeks of the war. And then they used their TB2s for ISR and for calling for artillery fire. Now we are sending them as fast as we can, hydro laser, laser guided rockets, the kind we used to shoot out of the old helicopters and we still have that we shoot out of, uh, out of Apaches because those will fit on the, on the uh, card points of the uh, TB2. And so they might be back in the game, at least shooting softer targets like trucks. But Ukraine is a bigger, a bigger war area. There was uh, a thought by the Russians, as you're well aware, that they would be welcomed. Uh, that, of course, didn't happen. I mean, if they didn't think that, why would they send their, their, their um, uh, basically military police in first uh, instead of uh, into Kiev rather than trying to, uh, to do a coordinated attack? <clears throat> so there were a lot of misconceptions on the Russians' part, and uh, their precision-guided uh, weaponry is now picking up in its capabilities, and they will learn from this. Now, the Chinese, on the other hand, are also working hard to develop this. So what we have to do, I think, is think about the possibilities and look about what may happen. The uh, Chinese last summer said that they used 3,500 small UAS to take down what they had uh, drawn out on the ground uh, a, on the desert there where they used as their strike zone, an aircraft carrier. So they're thinking about how will they use small UAS to take down ships? But they're also thinking about how to take down airfields, because if they take down Taiwan's airfields, Taiwan won't be able to fly its planes and you can see the, the rest of the problem. So these systems are not, a, are not a silver bullet. They are not the only thing we have to worry about. But if we don't consider them, we could be in real trouble. Now, with the top attack issue, you can see how top attack is the wave of the future. Rather than trying to blow us up from the front, or blow us up from the bottom now, they can get you from the top. The Russians were so worried about this that they actually put those cope cages on top of their T-80s and some other tanks. Now those cages weren't very effective, those bar armor that you saw, roof armor on some of those tanks, like I showed you in the first picture when we started. So those weren't very effective, certainly not against the Javelin, but they might've been effective against smaller things and possibly small UAS and maybe you know uh, Molotov cocktails. The bottom line is, is that you have to plan well for the war you're going to execute. And if you're going to go ahead, if you're going to go for air, air supremacy at the beginning, air dominance, then you have to have a campaign that uses all of the precision fire weaponry that you have to gain that. Now, there's an interesting thing that the Russians don't necessarily fight for air dominance. They fight for air denial. Uh, and we can talk about that in Russian doctrine. But the bottom line is they don't have air supremacy. The Ukrainians are able to fly helicopters and aircraft and UAS and, com and unmanned combat aerial vehicles like the TB2s. And those TB2s have been effective in two ways. They have destroyed a lot of Russian equipment, not more so probably than the Javelin and the NLAW and the, um, and the artillery, of course. But they also are winning the information war because of the videos that they, they take. And so... 
there's a, a two-edged sword here. You can you can you use the system to destroy, and you also use the video to win the information war. Now, one of our challenges is with our trophy system, our active protective system, is that this is not necessarily looking up. So even though we often say we have a 360 degree bubble over our systems, we don't really have a very good bubble on the top. And stopping the arrow, stopping the, the ability of those systems to hit our systems will require counter UAS weapons to defeat top attack capabilities. And you know as well as I do that we have a capabilities gap right now. And drone, uh, EM guns that we try to jam systems with work fine against the one or two small UAS, but these are not small UAS. The loading munitions like the Orbiter and the Harrop won't be stopped by a drone rifle. So killing or disrupting the Archer, the other idea is, to, well, let's kill the guy who's controlling it. That'll require a dedicated commander and will require lethal and non-lethal assets and a plan to do so. So the question is, in all of our engagements and all of our planning, how do we win the counter UAS fight? Now, if the enemy has no UAS, okay, that's fine. But every army in the world now can buy these if they want to. Azerbaijan showed us that a medium-sized power can do this. Uh, Russia may have screwed it up, but the war isn't over yet. Now, some things for top attack awareness. Here's an idea. Uh, we talked. You talked earlier about what you could do at the NTC, and you're already doing this to a certain degree at other places. But, and at the NTC, but imagine if we had tethered uh, drones over over an OC vehicle that took pictures, you know, frequently, and uh, we used these over the Blue Force key areas, taking a video of top attack challenges. And imagine if you use that for ARs, which I know some of you are doing. And imagine also if they did this at home station. In fact, why shouldn't every time a talk set up, they have a tethered drone just to see what they look like and use that for top attack awareness? We can buy these drones through the GSA catalog. They're US made. So there's no reason for us not to have them. Also, this is one system you were talking earlier about how to, to uh, show a, um, uh, a loitering munition-like capability. Here's one you can get for $2,000 and it's made in the USA. I just took this off the internet. So um, there are systems out there that could replicate for training at the training centers these kind of capabilities. Now, the next top warfighting disruptor I want to talk about is fully autonomous. So soldiers are our asymmetric advantage. There's no doubt about it. And when you see the problems in the Russian army, you see dramatically their lack of NCOs. They have an NCO academy that's, that makes about 2,000 NCOs a year, but I don't think they're very effective. And you can, you'll probably agree. All the videos that we've seen, particularly from uh, talking to prisoners of war that the Ukrainians have captured, uh, shows very poor discipline and very poor organization. So our soldiers are our asymmetric advantage, but as weapons become more autonomous, the military force that can network smart and intelligent weapons into an AI-enabled kill web that can operate at machine speeds will, will possess a tremendous capability, and that will directly attack our advantage. Now, it's all about the transformation from the kill chain to an AI-enabled kill web. And this is what China particularly wants to do. So fully autonomous, how will you counter the enemy's fully autonomous weapons? During the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War, again, this is history, many Azerbaijan loitering munitions and UCAVs were operated in fully autonomous mode during the attack phase of their mission cycle. China is deploying fully autonomous systems that will communicate in autonomous networks, swarms, to hunt targets at machine speeds. 
They're working it. Now, they do a lot of this for propaganda. We know that sometimes what they say and what they show isn't what they're capable of. But how much can we risk that? We need to think fully about what happened if they're able to do this. And then countering fully autonomous systems will require autonomous responses. You can't operate at machine speeds with the human, with the human being. It's beyond human cognition. And there's no ethical restrictions, for instance, for us to kill drones with drones. So the idea that we could have an autonomous response in a counter UAS effort is something to think about. Now, I know we're going to be fielding uh, a number of uh, battalions of uh, IM Shorad, but that doesn't really fit the capabilities gap. IM Shorad is still having problems being able to see things like TB2s. So loitering munitions cause an even more problem if they're used in numbers. The kill web. So, we, go ahead. Question? Okay. How will you counter a peer adversary's kill web? During the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War, the Azerbaijani kill chain was mostly controlled in human-on-the-loop mode, but was extremely fast because it was a sense-and-strike capability. Their loitering munitions and their UCAVs were able to see a target. The operator could then say, attack, push a button, and the Harrop would dive down and destroy it. That's a kill chain that is in seconds, not minutes. Or at least it's in several seconds. If they had ISR UAS doing this and then calling for fire through the guns and the whole kill chain thing, it takes much longer. Even at our best, how fast can we do that? Sense and strike munitions, loitering munitions are key. The ability to see and strike immediately so you can hit those fleeting targets. This has not been lost on Russia or China, although Russia hasn't again shown great capability so far against Ukraine in this, but we don't have really good information about all of their UAS capabilities and how they've employed them yet. Now, Russia and China are transitioning their kill chains and they're, they're transitioning from human on the loop to AI enabled kill webs. A kill web is AI enabled. A kill chain is human centric. So, as we move toward kill webs, particularly we can do this in the counter UAS arena if we wanted to, because we have weapons that fire a human out of the loop, like the Phalanx, like the CRAM, like uh, the, the, uh, the Patriot in certain uh, modes. Um, when those kill webs are set up, disrupting the opponent's kill web will become a priority. And how will we do that? Now, this is a Chinese drone launcher, one of the ones that they used for their massive drone flight of uh, 3,500 drones last summer. Chinese Le China Electronics Technology Group makes this one. This is a box that has 48 attack drones in it. You don't see all 48 there. There's more boxes that attach to it. But the point is, is that they put these in boxes. They can put them on ships. They can put them in trucks. So if they want to do this, they will put together a lot of drones to attack you uh, in a swarm. And these will all be loitering munitions that will hunt down the targets according to their targeting parameters. And China sees emerging technologies such as AI, cloud computing, big data analytics, quantum information, and unmanned systems as driving a shift toward intelligentized warfare, which you all know. This is straight from our manual that came out last year on the Chinese army. The last war fighting disruptor that I want to discuss is our inability to visualize the battle space. The Armenians had their command and control 
primarily in the traditional way. They set up command post tents. They set up their command posts. They had links to their artillery. They had links to their FM and, and landline links to their uh, to their forces on the front. And all of that was disrupted in the first two weeks of the war. The Azerbaijanis did a very good job at doing this. At the top of the screen, you see a Herat, again, carrying the, the explosive equivalent of a 155 millimeter artillery round. It's fired from a MRS-like launcher that you see on the left there, center, and is controlled by an operator left bottom. And again, that's an Armenian CP that was taken off of a video in the early parts of the war, and it was hit by a Herak. And when that happens, everyone's dead. The tent doesn't protect you. And even though they had air defense protecting the command post area, it couldn't see the TB2s. And it was ineffective against uh, their uh, loitering munitions. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that that we can go into detail about systems and, and, and how the uh, counter systems work. But this was a capabilities gap that the Armenians had that the Azerbaijanis were able to leverage to the hilt. And they used that to win. Now, visualizing the battle space, how will you visualize the battle space in all five domains? This is a true problem. During the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War, Azerbaijan used electronic warfare to jam Armenian command and control and then hunted and destroyed their command and control systems and facilities inside the battle space. Their tents did not survive. Their CPs did not survive. They were located and destroyed. Our peer competitors understand this and they will work to do the same thing. Our current CPs are almost impossible to mask and extremely difficult to defend. How much air defense do we have and how much can we allocate to our CPs. So we need to think immediately about some things involving our command posts. This is a picture of an American command post. You get the idea, you've seen this before. Now imagine if we had this kind of vision all the time because we had a tethered um, UAS above giving us that top attack awareness. What's interesting is that of course, this is probably for a warfighter, but none of the uh, generators are camouflaged in any way, and they run real hot, so the thermal image is amazing. And those camouflage nets on an open field kind of make you look like a command post in an open field. 31 Russian command posts have been hit since the war started, and, and apparently 10 Russian generals confirmed KIA, with many more staff officers and others trained officers killed or wounded. 31 command posts since the war started. And of course, this is what many of our command posts look like. And all these guys are dedicated to getting their information off of their screen and trying to synthesize that. We put it together so our commanders can understand what's going on. But we can't do this anymore. We've got to think different. There's some things I think that need to be done immediately, so I offer these to you in, in, in humble consideration. First, we need to seriously think about our TTP to mask our CPs. What can we do to mask our CPs? There are things we can do. There are things we can do to reduce the signature. There are things we can do to set up decoys. There are things we can do that will help us mask our CPs. We need to operate our CPs from distributed and dispersed cells. So that means they need to be separated. We need some distance between different elements. It's much better to have everybody together, but it's too big a target today. We need to operate our CPs inside of cities and towns. The noise from cities and towns will help mask our signatures. 
We need to start thinking that way. We need to determine how to link distributed and dispersed CPs to very hard to detect um, ways in the electronic spectrum by laying cable, ethernet cable or fiber optic cable instead of using everything wireless. And we need to think about multiple distributed displaced antennas. And of course, many of you are already doing this and you're seeing this at the National Training Center, I know. But imagine if every, every command post had three antennas uh, or five antennas or six antennas, they only use one at a time. They, they, they blink off of them and change them around and they distribute them far enough away so that the antennas aren't giving away the exact precision of the, of the command post, they're farther away. That's gonna be hard to do, but we could do it. We need to get much better at mission command. I know that all of you think that we're good at mission command, that we know mission command. I ask you to do this one thing, this acid test. Ask any one of your officers or leaders to define mission command for you in their own words. All understanding starts with definition. Just ask them, what is mission command? And see how long it takes for them to answer. Intellectualized, enhanced mission command systems. We need to think about what we would do if we're not going to do all the stuff we're doing now. How would we change? How would we actually make mission command better? How would we enhance it? What systems would we need to do that? What TTP would we need to do that? How would we need to think differently? And then we need to develop and deploy future enhanced mission command systems as rapidly as we can. So we must execute mission command differently. Imagine, if you will, a thought experiment. Imagine that if we had the IVIS, which many of you are aware, very well aware of, which has a hollow lens inside of it. And what if we said, okay, we wanna reconfigure that and maximize it for a commander's interface for mission command. So they could plug into their vehicle and have the screens right on their, right on their hollow lens. They wouldn't need all those screens. They wouldn't need an officer in front of them telling them what's going on. They could do it distributed if we can get the comms to do that. But if you don't have comms in our headquarters now, you don't command anyway. So we've got to figure out how to distribute it, how to make it harder to kill. So again, you all have a lot of rocks in your rucksack. My intent was not to put more rocks in there. And many of these things we can argue and debate about, but the methods of warfare are changing. Well-trained, equipped and expertly led soldiers they, that, that is our asymmetric advantage. But to maintain that advantage, we must think, study, dialogue, and reflect to keep up the, the pace of change. Studying the Second Dagona Karabakh War is a good place to start. Continually studying what's happening in Ukraine, of course, is necessary. So those are the top of our fighting disruptors. They're not necessarily something you haven't ever thought about. They're not something that are so brand new that no one's thought about them. But these are questions that each one of us need to ask as commanders. How would we handle these issues? And then we need to form our training around it so that we can figure out how to win and win in this new environment. We definitely have problems. We have capability gaps. We have TTP issues. All of these things will get better if we have a robust dialogue about them and discuss them. Now, I give these presentations, as I say, to anyone who, who needs them or wants to get them. Uh, upon request, I will do any of these. I have the complete story of the Second Dagona Karabakh War, the uh, one that zeroes completely on the Battle of Shusha, number two there, which is a very interesting battle, which was uh, interesting to you because the decisive terrain was also the center of gravity. That rarely happens in war. Uh, the seven disruptors briefing you've just seen, and this is the updated shortened version. The 
mission command in a transparent battle space, a discussion with teams on how we could do this today. Masking, a discussion with teams on how training for warfare in a transparent battle space could happen. I'll give you an example. I did several of these. I asked the simple question. It was an infantry unit. I said, how many times, every time you set up an infantry platoon, defensive position, how many decoys do you set up? And you know the answer, they don't. And so our challenge is, is that we need to start thinking about all these things in masking, but we first have to understand what masking is. And then I'm also working on and, and I have talked uh, with some folks about observations, insight, and lessons from the Russian-Ukrainian war ongoing. And, um, you know, the exact lessons of the war, of course, are problematic right now because it's still underway, but there are things we can derive from it, and you already recognize some things. So I'd like you to write down my email address. It's the Army Values, LDRSHIP77 at gmail.com. If I can help you in any way, call upon me to do so. Please write that down. I'll give you a second here. What are your questions? And I will click off the briefing. Okay. Hey, it's uh, Curtis Buzzard, uh, Forcecom G3. I, I just, I really appreciate your discussion on masking, and I was just talking to some folks here at the table too. I think it really, particularly the, you know, how you talk through acoustics, you know, visual, all the different. You know, I've often wondered. I just say this as a comment for our army to think about. You know, we have a rich history of deception, and I think it's something we might need to look at and provide additional focus on. I think having been at, at Cog out, you know, I was over in Europe, and we were looking at. You know, there's so many so there's only so so many ways you can mask your EW signature, but thinking about ways to overwhelm so you're a, a needle among needles rather than just sitting out there. You're not, you know, there's ways to kind of create the haystack um, with with false signatures and how to you know cyber to break into a UAS and make something look different than what it did or or fake you know the acoustic pieces. An old op four guy here. We used to have our psyops truck roll around at night playing picket pounders and track vehicle sounds and you go to the AR and units thought a whole battalion was preparing a defense in there so I just think it's a little bit of a lost art but kind of you know leads to your discussion on uh you know on masking encouraging people to be innovative when it comes to the deception piece over yeah exactly so I was in the up for once upon a time too land before time uh but uh absolutely right uh what we have to do is we just got to get a robust discussion about these issues. You know, no one has all the answers. I certainly don't. I'm trying to ask the hard questions. And what we have to be able to do is to win the next fight against enemies who are thinking hard about what they're going to do in these arenas. So uh, if we have to oppose the Russians in five years somewhere, they will have learned from their previous fight, I'm pretty sure. Uh, now, maybe their system is so rotten that it'll collapse, and we can all pray that happens. Chinese, we don't know. You know, uh, they're probably a lot um, uh, less capable than they like to make everybody think. But nonetheless, we can't count on our enemies being slouches. So I totally agree with you. The masking piece, I think, is is crucial. We have got to learn to mask in the 21st century. We've got to figure out how to do it. And there's a lot of ways that we haven't really employed that we could think about. And if you took, if you sat down with your staff and said, okay, let's do a thought experiment on how we could mask 
a battalion talk, a brigade talk, a division talk, you would come up with a whole bunch of different things that we're not doing now, and that's healthy. And that's my point. So right on target. Yes, thank you. Hey, hey John, it's uh, Chuck Lombardo uh, from CACT. A couple months ago, I think we went down to Fort Stewart and uh, looked at their distributed command post, uh, and they were using a wireless CPs. But is that a way in the future that we may need to think about? The, the, gone are the days of a CIC floor. It's you know, it was a squadron command post. We saw four tracks dispersed, the fires too, and the SCO, you know, was, uh, it was you know, T Colonel Tillis working it for, for the Army, but that may be another way to look at hiding in plain sight. I mean, and, and that's at the squadron level, but I would be interested to well, hear your guys' feedback on that. I'll, I'll tell you what we need is a fiber optic TA-312, right? I mean, the bandwidth that we need to collaborate, uh, and, and we can do this, right? I mean, you can run, you know, wire dogs can run that out, you bury the cables, you're good to go, right? Um, but we can't do it with a wireless mesh um, because we can't keep Wi-Fi up in our own barracks. So we can't, you know, um, but uh, uh, but it, it creates a signal. But we've got to get good at this before we distribute these command posts. Our challenge here at the NTC and, and the COG and I debate this all the time. One of the one of the axioms of the, of the CTC is you can't give the brigade commander a problem that he can't solve. Um, I mean, we could have, you know, tactical nukes out here, you know, and, and, and that would create a realistic effect. But yeah, that's a problem a brigade can't solve. Right now, you know, Todd can take out the brigade talk on training day two with just about every brigade. But Cog's not going to let him because that's a problem the brigade commander can't solve. And when are we going to get to a robust brigade that can survive that? I'm sure you have, you struggle with the same thing. I mean, the op four is like, oh, come on, let me hit it. I got it. You know, nope, can't let you do that. So that's where we're struggling because we're not training to the environment we're going to fight. Well, I know we're getting ready to go to another CP summit. I did one in 16 uh, with Force Common, and it was, you know, every division commander in the Army. We had all of our, our little Spano vans. We were all backed up. They were cute. And here we are six years later, um, still kind of dorking around the same problem set. So I think, you know, we just got match up whatever is distributed, mesh network, wireless, small, you know, whatever the problem set's going to be, we probably just need to get after it. And I, and I know... It's all about priorities and resources, but it is kind of disconcerting when we're... I just say, too, with that, it's not a one-size-fits-all. I, I completely understand your point. I think we're throwing the burden on brigades to figure this out. And But I remember I was telling Joe, I remember the Ukrainian Chad coming to JMRC, and he looked around and said, you know, these would be dead in 15 minutes. Yep. They dig in their, their containers. They dig in containers, or they told us they did, you know, 20 feet deep in the ground. So, so you nuance what your CP looks like based on the environment. His point of using... Cities and towns, we've historically maybe stayed out of those structures. But then we just have so much signature right now. I mean, the antennas and everything else, I don't know. We, we can hide We can hide in the cities because of the noise of the cities will, will help us. Now, a couple of things. We can't say that, and none of you are saying this, but, but we have to be able to have a robust discussion about this. And we can do an awful lot of thinking that will help us do this before we have to get, you know, into the sandbox. Um, we have the greatest simulations of any army on Earth. Why aren't we using them? You know, why aren't we using VBS-3, for instance, and we have a company, a battalion, a brigade fight against an enemy that's Azerbaijan-like equipped and see how we would do and learn from that. We can do that at the cost of electrons. Uh, why don't we set up the first battle at the any training center to be one that is a scenario that's on a computer that they can fight 100 times before they come? And they come and do it and they actually might win you know, the first battle, and then you get it harder from there. So there's a lot of things that you all are thinking about, and I know you're on target with most of this, but um, 
what we have to do is we have to project our thoughts forward in time and space to see where it's going to be, not the way we want it to be, but the way it will be. Hey, hey, hey John, it's Chuck again, and I'd like to take you up on that. I know we talked before about your gaming and tactical background. The combination of it is powerful for our Army, um, and I'd love to harness that with our, our VBS whatever you know it got stry right here that's getting ready to unload this thing out into the street we, we ought to be thinking about that these are the, the bloodless tactical battles that we have on powerpoint we probably need to get this into the, the constructive and virtual environment so we can have a thousand ltps at home and, and really practice these reps before we get here yeah exactly so in fact why don't we make a uh, a tradoc uh contest in VBS three, where any captain, any lieutenant, any sergeant can fight the battle as any at whatever level and win a prize for figuring out how to do it. I mean, all of this happens in the commercial world, and it's very powerful. I mean, if any of your soldiers play Fortnite, and they all do, they'll get it. I mean, imagine if they got cred for actually fighting VBS three. So those kind of things are things we could do, but we can do simulations even if we don't have. The electrons, we could we could do it on a piece of paper. We can do thought experiments. And eventually we have to ditch the screens and we have to have commanders with edge computing with the ability to put on a helmet or a visor like a hollow lens and get his coordination that way. So he or she can figure out what to do without having all of these people around them. And we're gonna need mobile armored command posts that are smaller and faster and all those kind of things. So unless we're gonna dig in, and to dig in, we really need Elon Musk's uh, bore drilling company to uh, figure out how we're going to dig in and then figure out how to breathe once we get down there. Unless we're going to dig in, we got to go to cities and towns. And we ought to do that routinely. And that ought to be every warfighter. And the warfighter, it doesn't even cost us anything to do it in a warfighter. It's just electrons. So those kind of things need to be thought through because core talks, you know, division talks, they will not survive. Any more questions, or have I worn you out? Point in for everybody that came. I uh, greatly appreciate you coming. Um, I've got Sergeant Major Hansen here. I've got Captain uh, Drew Mueller here. Uh, happy to stand by and talk CTC, uh, JRTC with you after. Uh, what I what I would commend to you is uh, as a two-time offender of the CTCs, uh, 19 rotations at the National Training Center as uh, the Tarantula 07 and Bronco 07, and then over at JRTC. The, these are a difference maker for our Army. Uh, hugely humbling to be a, an OCT. Um, what I found my first, my third rotation uh, was the mistakes that I made as a battalion commander with fires. I questioned whether somebody should let me command a battalion. Um, and so the opportunity to come to a CTC and learn, uh, learn your craft, really a deepening assignment, uh, hugely rewarding what you get to do in helping units get better, hugely rewarding in what you get to do in helping to develop uh, other officers and non-commissioned officers, and hugely, I think, beneficial to what you will get out of it uh, for yourself and learning our craft and our war fighting. All right, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us on The Crucible, the JRTC Experience. The Joint Readiness Training Center is the premier crucible training experience. We prepare units to fight and win in the most complex environments against world-class opposing forces. We are America's leadership laboratory.
Again, we'd like to thank our guests for participating. This podcast was created and produced by Mr. John Mabes. It was recorded and edited by Chief Thomas Rich and researched by First Lieutenant Anthony Cho. Intro vocals were done by Mr. Robert Chopper. Special thanks to Captain Jermaine Branch and Mr. Jeff England from Public Affairs. Be sure to like and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest warfighting TTPs learned through the crucible that is the Joint Readiness Training Center. Follow us by going to https colon forward slash forward slash l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash j-r-t-c. We'd like to thank our partners at the Center for Army Lessons Learned of the Combined Arms Center, especially the JRTC Call Observations Detachment. Be sure to follow them on social media as well. Follow them at https colon forward slash forward slash www.army.mil forward slash C-A-L-L. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review us wherever you listen or watch your podcasts, and be sure to stay tuned for more in the near future. The Crucible, the JRTC experience, is a product of the Joint Readiness Training Center.